Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. It's Thursday, March the 18th. I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Uh, we are working through the daily lectionary, and so today our lessons are going to come from Jeremiah, Romans, and John again. And so we're now deeper into Jeremiah. We're 22 chapters in, and, and it seems that Josiah, the, the good king who instituted many reforms to roll back the worship of the false gods and other practices that had been going on in Israel for a long time, um, has, is, is no longer the king. It's his son Jehoiakim who is the king, and we know that because um, Jeremiah mentions him specifically in this passage that we're going to read today. And, and it, it makes perfect sense the way he begins this, Woe to him who, begin, who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I'll build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. So he's, they're, they're wealthy, is what they're saying. They're, they're in great wealth right now, and it's a very difficult thing to hear. And Jesus says, you know, it's, it's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says that in response to the rich young ruler who'd come to him looking to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus told him, you've got to sell everything in this life. You've got to sell your earthly inheritance and get rid of it, give it to the poor in order to do that. Now, that's not a generic commandment to people. It was a commandment to that young man because that's what kept him from stepping in and receiving eternal life was he didn't want to give up what he already had in order to get it. And Jesus tells so many parables of the kingdom that have to do with selling everything you have in order to go and and get that thing, that treasure in the field, that pearl of great price, whatever it was. And and that's the reason that he says it's difficult for us, for wealthy uh, people, to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say it was impossible. He just said it was very difficult. And and he didn't tell the rich young ruler, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he didn't give him the option that too many of us think we have now, which is that, that the, he could pretend, essentially live as though he didn't have the money, but keep it anyway. No, in that particular instance, Jesus told him to get rid of everything in order to enter the king or receive the kingdom as his inheritance. And so, it, it's like I said, it's not a, a generic com- commandment. It's, it's nothing to do with that at all. It's, it, Jesus read his heart, and he called him to give up the thing that he needed to give up. His heart really didn't want it. He wanted to have this and that. And Jesus is basically saying you can not have this and that. In your particular case, you've got to give up everything in order to get it. C.S. Lewis talks about the same thing, that we've got to aim completely at heaven. We've got to have our eyes fixed completely on that. It has to be the chief aim of our lives, the thing that we value more than anything else. And that's all Jesus was getting at with that. But, But he did. He offered him the only chance that he had, which was to get rid of all that in order to receive the kingdom. And here, you know, I've told you back in Deuteronomy 8 that... Moses really was concerned deeply about prosperity and that the people, once they had prosperity, they would attribute that, the gaining of that to themselves 
and they'd forget that God was responsible for giving them everything, including the land that was producing this value. He gave them the, the physical ability to produce from the land, and he gave the land the ability to produce. All those things come from him. And, and Moses said, I know what's going to happen, though. You're going to forget, and you're going to think that this is all due to you in some way, uh, your efforts or whatever. And at the same time, you're going to lose sight of the fact that all this stuff comes from God, and he can stop it in an instant. And that's what Jeremiah is telling them here, is, is that you've got all this stuff, but it's not enabling you to hear, and, and you're getting it the wrong way, not God's way. You're getting it through injustice and unrighteousness. So then he goes on and says, Do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did your, not your father eat and drink and, and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. So justice and righteousness are more important to God than what we have. It's who we are that matters deeply to God. And he says, you know, your father did justice and righteousness and had everything he wanted and needed. You seem to have forgotten that. You want dishonest gain. You don't want to to be content with the things that you can get while doing righteousness and justice. And so then he speaks against Jehoiakim. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's a pretty awful thing to say. But that is, in fact, how Jehoiakim died, like rubbish, and carried out because he no longer had any value in the eyes of others, no matter what the value he had in his own eyes was. And then if they missed all this, Jeremiah makes it plain, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. And that's the issue. And because we won't listen in those circumstances, God took it away from them. You see some of the same kind of stuff in the uh, letters to the churches in the first part of the book of the Revelation. When Jesus constantly says, I'm going to take your lampstand for you if you don't repent and do the things you did before. If you don't turn around from where you are, I'll take your lampstand from you. And it's, so it's, it's not that, that prophecy in the New Testament has to be happy clappy and upbuilding. No. Sometimes God has words to say to his church and to his leaders and to his people that's less than pleasing to us. But we need to be always open to being convicted by the Holy Spirit. It's not condemnation. It's conviction. And so in John 6, remember Jesus had upset everybody by saying that he was the bread of life and that the only, that you must come to him. He doesn't say, I'm the bread of life, but so is, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And there are going to be others who come after me who are also the bread of life. And you can choose that path if you'd like. That's not what he says at all. He points specifically to himself. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. And now they're going to go where they always go. Wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Who does he think he is? You know, We know who he is. We know where he came from. He's claiming to have come down from heaven, and we know where he came from. And we've already shown this again and again and again. That's the default position that they took during that time. And they honestly didn't know where he came from. Because remember when they accused him of being born out of immorality? 
a couple of days ago in the readings, that they thought they knew where he came from. Here, at least, they're ascribing Joseph some role in the process. But the problem is, is that they continue to go back to something that they claim that they know, and they don't. You know, they surely knew this story. People had to have known the story of the virgin birth. And the reason I say that is because you don't come up with the story of the Roman soldier if you don't know the story of the virgin birth. You just don't believe it is the only reason you come up with that. There's got to be an alternative explanation for it, something that's more natural and more easily understood and digested than, than this weird story of a virgin birth because we've never heard a story of a virgin birth. That's, that doesn't appear in, in Scripture. And we, you know, we've seen other births. John's makes sense to us because his parents were old. Well, you know, there were others that were born that way. There was Samson. There was, you know, uh, Isaac. And so, yeah, we're accustomed to that, but this is something totally different. And it's, it's unnatural at a level we can't even relate to, and so we won't accept it. And so they've come up with these alternative explanations, and, and now they're just claiming we know this. And how does he say, I've come down from heaven? And then Jesus answers and said, Don't grumble among yourselves on this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws, draws him. I had a long conversation with somebody yesterday about this very issue. In fact, there's a customer at Amazon. And what we talked about was the, the idea that, that what we do has value whenever we share Jesus with other people. But the reality is, is that we can't walk away thinking, I failed if they don't then come to know him, because it's unless the Father draws him. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit for anyone to be saved and to believe. And Jesus says, if they do, then I'll raise him up on the last day. And then so he goes into that in a little more depth and says, whoever, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. And he goes on and on with this idea of being the bread of life. And your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. And, and so this bread of life is like the water that he talked to the woman at the well about in Samaria. That, that you don't need more if you have that. And so you see that same idea about bread. You see all that back in Deuteronomy as well. Because that's where when Jesus is tempted by Satan to turn those stones into bread, when he uh, says to him, as man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8. And then later in Deuteronomy 26, <clears throat> there were, the people are reminded, you were all these years in the wilderness and your shoes didn't wear out, your clothing didn't wear out. You didn't have bread or wine there either, but you were sustained in those years. So there's something beyond bread that matters in all this, that, that bread, it represents something tangible and, quote, real from our perspective. And so we value it because it's more real to us. And Jesus says, I'm offering you something more than that. I'm offering you the bread of life. And remember, again, with the woman at the well, the disciples can't figure out. They want him to eat something. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, I'm not hungry. I have food you know nothing of. It has to do with doing the Father's will is my food. And, and they were utterly confused by that. But there's a huge truth in that. The most important thing, Jesus says, is doing the will of God. And, and you're fed in natural and supernatural ways by doing that very thing. But he, he's raising their sights above the tangible and the real into something that's no less real, but it's less tangible, which is the spiritual and the eternal. 
And Jesus says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's an ominous, ominous note there. And, and we know the disciples didn't like that idea at all. And neither did the other people because Messiah wasn't supposed to die. So Jesus is speaking to a relatively prosperous people. They've certainly got enough freedom. They just don't have control. They're subjects in the land, but they're not subjugated in the land. And so he's speaking to these people and in ways that that should appeal to them in, in certain kinds of ways. But, it, but, you know, I had a good friend who used to say, I can't get desperate for you. And that's the word that I would hang on all of this is, is that sometimes we have to get to a place where we're desperate for him, where we can't live without him. When I went to seminary, uh, I was interviewed by a bishop, and one of the first things he said to me was, John, are you able to do other things? I said, well, I'm quite good at what I do. <laughs> I'm an expert, and I'm, you know, and I've been an expert at that point for about 10 years, recognized in different federal courts. I said, I'm quite good at what I do. And he said, that's not what I mean, though. I'm not asking you if you're able to do something, you know. Um, what I want to know is, is, are you, is your heart able to allow you to do these things? And the answer was, no, it's not. I'm dying even though I'm really good at what I do, I'm just dying inside every time I have to do this rather than do that. And he said, okay, then then we'll talk about you coming to seminary. And, and so that's what Paul's talking about in this Romans 8, 12 to 27 passage when he talks about the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And then he's when we do that, then the Spirit bears witness that we are indeed children of God. And if children, then heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. And we don't like to hear that word suffer, but it's shot through the Gospels and it's shot through the epistles. And we can't avoid that. And, and if we even open our eyes a little bit, we can't avoid that. And we shouldn't be promising people a, 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 a life in Christ without suffering, because he suffered for us. And so that example tells us everything we need to know. And the more we promise people a trouble-free life in Christ, that you can have your best life now, the more we lie to them and we set them up for failure because we've sold them a false gospel. It's not to say that everything is about suffering, but, but Paul is very clear that suffering is a part of the game because Jesus was very clear about suffering being a part of the game. And he gets into some more stuff here, and he talks about creation is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. And it's because in the fall, we were estranged from creation. The, the creation fell as well. Creation wants to cooperate with us, but, but part of the fall was that it wouldn't any longer cooperate without toil. And so creation, indeed, I believe in creation care. I believe in environmentalism. I, I think all those things are exactly right. We need to care for the good creation that God gave us because he loves it. He didn't stop loving it at creation. Sin is what's brought about the fall, and we need to be more clear about that whole idea that we can gain more and more prosperity and do more and more harm to God's creation and show that we don't value it for anything other than its productive capabilities, its ability to produce, well, for us, personally. Not just for other people, but, but mostly for us and what we can get out of it. And that's exactly what, what Jeremiah was saying to the people there, is, is that, that you don't do justice and righteousness to each other or to the earth. 
in these things. It's something that we need to think about and consider, I believe, that, that how do we live lightly and take care of God's creation as Christians? Because as Christians, we have a, a deep responsibility for it because we're stewards. We're stewards for the next generations, but we're stewards for God. It was the job we were given to do. And so don't let our prosperity become a snare to us and enable us to think that we can rape the productive capabilities of God's good creation.